Support for this podcast comes from CLR Clear. Fight back against annoying household messes with CLR Clear. CLR Clear is tough on dirt and grime all around your home, and we're not just talking about calcium, lime, and rust. They have an entire lineup of cleaning products for your kitchen, bathroom, garage, and more. Visit clrbrands.com to learn more. CLR Clear, fight the clean fight. Eileen Fisher designs simple clothes to make your life easier. Timeless pieces in high-quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and more positive impact in the world. Visit EileenFisher.com and use offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hello, Ann Friedman. Uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, a books episode. <laughs> it's like, what is this girl smoking? <laughs> you know exactly what I'm smoking. <laughs> oh my gosh. For real though, it's like it's reading season. I, I feel like I do more reading in the last like month of the year than I do like the, you know, the prior 10 months or whatever. You know, I hadn't noticed, but you're probably right. But you know, we're also like constantly reading, so it's hard to tell. But I will say I've been reading a lot more for pleasure recently. And uh, that's like a game changer for me. Oh my God, you've given up your business books habit? Okay, first of all, that's always pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't malign. Please don't malign biz books. Well, I guess maybe like I should say that I'm reading more fiction, which, you know, like for me is nuts. I'm enjoying it so much. I'm just like, oh, this is why people read fiction. This is fun. Imagination run rampant. What is the best fiction book you've read this year? It's called The Wedding Date. And uh, actually, I interviewed the author, Jasmine Guillory, about it. And uh, you'll get to listen to it in a minute. But I, like, can't tell you, Anne, like, you know how I feel about fiction. But this was, like, super fun. The book is, like, super sexy and funny. I read it all in, like, one sitting after I had surgery a few weeks ago. And I never wanted it to finish. It's just, like, really funny and honest. Yes. And it's a romance. Can you believe I'm telling you this? That I read, like, a I romance. I can't even believe this. And I loved it. Yes. People can change. Um, <laughs> no, I haven't changed. Jasmine Guillory is just amazing. Uh, yes. My name is Jasmine Guillory. I am a writer and a lawyer living in California. And my first book, um, The Wedding Date, comes out January 30th, 2018. I love that you're a lawyer slash writer because that's kind of what your book is about. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Without giving out too many details, can you tell the listeners the plot of the book? Yes. The book is about a man and a woman who meet because they get stuck in an elevator in a hotel in San Francisco and he convinces her to be his date to his ex-girlfriend's wedding um, that's happening that weekend. And then they decide that they have some feelings for each other after being together at the wedding and all sorts of exciting things happen. This makes me so happy because everybody who listens to CYG and my like IRL friends know how um, I'm like starved for reading fiction. I'm such an idiot. I never do. And then when I do, I'm like, oh, imagination, sparks, like creativity. This is how <laughs> it's like, oh, this is like how to activate another part of your brain. But the thing that I like loved about your book is just how modern it feels, you know, without like, there's nothing hokey about it at all. It's like super modern. It's super sexy. And it's very charming. And it's a romance. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. And I think one of it's funny that you talk about that you read my book when you had surgery, because one of the things that got me into reading romance novels was when I had surgery a few years ago. And I like before basically, and then all during my recovery, I read like zillions of romance novels. Um, and I had been writing before that, but I like, when I started reading them, I was like, these are delightful to read, but I would never want to write one. And then a little while later, I kept thinking like, I really enjoy reading these books, but n 
there's so many that I that don't feel like my friends and me, you know, like people yes. who live in cities and have like jobs that they care about and like there's so many people who have jobs that, are, that don't seem like part of their world. And a lot of people I know, like jobs are central to their lives. And I wanted people who cared about their jobs and their friends and lived in cities and but also like fell in love and had a relationship with one another because of that. And so I'm really glad that that, that you like that about my book. Cause that was really one of the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, I also love that like race comes up in the book, you know, and that's so like in our lives, like you and me at least. And I imagine a lot of people who are listening, yeah. that's so normal. And it's not like in this like overwrought, like, Oh my God, there's an interracial relationship. How will we handle this? It's like, no, some people are of color and some people are white. And here is how, like, that intersects in a romance and a life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is normal to have those quick conversations about race. Like, a not big, like, we need to talk about this thing. But in a, you know, when you're walking into a party and be like, well, am I going to be the only person here? Or even just, like, not even just in a romantic relationship. Like, with my friends. Sometimes I go to a party at a friend's house and I'm like, oh, who else are you inviting that might look like me kind of thing. And so I'm glad that that resonated with other women of color, especially. Yeah. You know, and I, I love also that like drew the, um, the like white man character in your book is like, he just becomes like more and more mindful of his privilege. And I'm like, Oh my God, is this like the woke definition of sexy? Because I'm really into it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I wanted to do with Drew was to, and it didn't feel realistic for him to, have thought of some of those things, you know, like I think when she first brings it up to him, he's like, Oh, that never occurred to me, which is often what a lot of white people who haven't thought about that will say when their black girlfriend or black friend brings that up. But having someone react in a good way is so important to continue a relationship. Um, Like I hadn't thought of that. And now I will think of it (laughs) as opposed to like, I haven't thought of that. That's a stupid thing for you to worry about. Don't worry. All of my friends are nice, which is what some people say. Like, my friends don't worry about color. That is not the right way to answer that question. The number one way that I've convinced, like, everybody in my life to pre-order your book is that I've told them that it's, like, also very raunchy. And uh, and I was like, listen, you guys, this is, like, very sexy writing. And you're, like, 100% going to be into it. And it, like, makes sense, right? Because it's, like, their connection starts out as, like, duh, like, physical. You know, like... Like, yeah. how many of us, like, know that? It's like, oh, I'm really into that person. And then you're like, oh, maybe there's, like, real feelings there. But I don't know. Yeah, I just, something more. There's such a thing about, like, I feel like we haven't had any good rom-coms recently. Yeah. And, like, so much of your book, like, captures that, like, perfect rom-com feeling. Where you're like, oh, I'm laughing, but also, like, this is raunchy and this is sexy and funny. And it's just, like, so great. Oh, yay. Thank you so much. The funniest thing for me from that was when my dad read a galley of the book. No. He, he did not. <laughs> my dad will not be reading a galley of your book. <laughs> he did not appreciate. <laughs> he did not appreciate the wretchedness. <laughs> One text that he sent me, my, to preface this, my parents have been divorced for 15 years. He sent me a text that said, oh my God, does your mother know? <laughs> oh my God. It's like, does your mother know that Which you're Which just made me laugh very before. hard. Oh my yes, gosh. right. <laughs> yeah. But my dad yeah, will not be reading the book. <laughs> That's yeah. not gonna happen. Um, you know, like what do you think about like people who say that like reading romance books is not feminist at all or you know, that it's also like an <sighs> indulgence that like women shouldn't do? I mean, it just seems it just seems like more sexism, right? Like yep. romance novels for the vast, the vast majority of romance novels are written by women for women. And of course, like people are going to look down on something that's about women being happy, right? Like I feel like all of society makes fun of things that women like. So of course people are going to make fun of romance novels because women like them. I mean, of course there are feminist romance novels. Of course they're anti-feminist romance novels, just like literally everything else in the world. It just makes me sort of roll my eyes. Like, of, of course, people are going to do that. Like, people do it with young adult books, too, because mostly teenage girls read them. So, of course, they're going to make fun of them because everybody likes to make fun of teenage girls. Um, and I think teenage girls are great. And I also think that women are great. So I like writing books <laughs> for and about women. 
Yeah, and surprise, surprise, like, both young adult novels and romance novels, like, make, like, hella money for the publishing industry. But because it's, like, women-dominated, nobody takes it seriously. Right, yeah. I I just find, I mean, I just find the whole thing, like, or it's people who haven't, who've never read a romance novel or, like, the last one they read was written sometime in the 80s where, like, Someone got raped on their wedding night and then, you know, like, or, or like a whole Luke and Laura fell in uh, love with a rapist thing. Okay, but, you know, seriously, that's not what, like, romance novels written in 2017 are like. So maybe read a few books and then update your feelings on that. That's so real. Um, I want to talk about, like, work also. The whole time you're, like, being a badass lawyer in California, like, were you like, one day I'm going to write a novel? Or did you, you know, like, what was the trajectory there? Because I always, I'm always so jealous of people who have, like, demanding jobs who make time for creative output. Well, so that's exactly why I started writing. I grew up as a huge reader and always have been, but I, it never occurred to me to start writing until I was in my mid-30s. I mean, I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe I just never envisioned myself as a writer or I thought of like writers as being different kind of people than the person that I was. But I was in a job where I kind of realized that I wasn't doing anything creative. My job was taking a lot of energy, but it wasn't like my the creative part in my brain wasn't being used. And I I was thinking like what can I what can I do creative in my life? Well like I can't sing. I can't draw. I really like to cook, but I don't, (laughs) that doesn't really feel like the thing. Like I've always loved to read. Maybe I should try writing. And I had a very tentative conversation with a friend who's a writer because I felt really nervous about it. I mean, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was 12. So I'd always like pictured myself as a lawyer and it felt really like strange and kind of like a betrayal to decide maybe I'll try something else. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You should try. I'll read anything you write. And I just kind of started writing a novel then. And that, you know, I wrote that year. I got a lot of help from friends. And then I just sort of kept going. And then that's where this book came from. So that that this wasn't my first book. But I think everything that I tried to write in the past has helped me kind of develop as a better writer and, you know, my voice and know what I wanted to write about, I think, too. That's so cool. And also that, like, you get to keep doing, like, both of the things that you love doing. Yeah, absolutely. Who do you want to play Drew and Alexa in the inevitable movie that's going to come out of this? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, let's speak that into the world because that would be amazing. Hollywood, call us. (laughs) People have asked me that a lot, and I cannot think of the right woman for Alexa. For Drew, I feel like one of the Chris's would be excellent. One of the Chris's, Either, (laughs) Yeah, like either Pine or... Let's see. Evans. The other one. The Chris. Evans. Pine or Evans, I feel like. What about about the Thor, the big one? He's a little too big, I feel like. Okay, okay. Sorry, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. You don't you don't get yeah. to participate in You're, this. You don't, yeah. The problem with Alexa is everybody I can think of that I know of in Hollywood is either the like the wrong age or a little too skinny. Which I understand that being too skinny is just gonna be a thing in Hollywood. So I'm sure that that would change for any movie my vision of what the character is maybe we'll find a young upstart or maybe i'll become an actress just for you jasmine oh that's a great idea excellent um someone this weekend did suggest the um i wish i I don't watch how to get away with murder but someone this weekend suggested Uh, one of the women in that yes uh carrie washington i think is a little is, is not quite right but um but I like I like the idea of Carrie Washington. She just doesn't she she just doesn't seem quite right for the character. Don't worry, Hollywood will find the right person for this. Um, all right, all right. What's what's next for you after this? So the book comes out early next year. Yes. Yeah, the book comes out in January. So I have another book that I'm working on um, that is a follow up to this book about Carlos, who is Drew's best friend from this book, um, called The Proposal. Um, and that one is set in LA. Yes. I love that you've cornered this. I love that you've, I love that you've cor- cornered like modern romance market. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, I'm really excited about the second one too. It starts, it's called the proposal. It starts because 
um, a woman is at Dodger Stadium with her boyfriend. He proposes to her on the Jumbotron and she says no. And it's about what happens afterwards. And Carlos is sitting right behind her and sort of like helps her get away from, from the, from all of the people wanting to talk to her about it. Holy shit. That's amazing. Well, congrats, Jasmine. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, CYG listeners. Thank you so much. You can pre-order the wedding date on Amazon or at your closest independent bookstore. You will not regret it. Every generation has its challenges. Some would say that's the reason for its progress. It might start with a small act of kindness or a big idea that changes everything. It can come from the tiniest voice or the voice of a generation. Or it could come from me, Aminatu. I am one of six change-making women featured in Eileen Fisher's Good Goes On campaign this spring. The campaign highlights women empowering women, the importance of sustainability, and the power of good design. Eileen started in 1984 with the idea that simple clothes can make life easier. And after spending a day on set wearing a super comfortable ultra chic jumpsuit, I think she's really on to something. As a company, Eileen Fisher believes doing well by doing good, and that's reflected in the way their clothes are made. Timeless styles and quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and a more positive impact on the world. It was a real honor to be featured in this campaign and meet the other women making a difference in their community. I've been a longtime Eileen Fisher fan, so this was a dream come true for me. You can visit EileenFisher.com and use the offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off of your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. I am also excited because I interviewed the author of one of my favorite books of 2017, which is a short story collection called Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. It's so, so good. Honestly, like I I know I keep saying I'm going to mail a copy to you and it's like sitting in an envelope. I just haven't mailed it to you because you are going to love especially the chapter that is based on SVU. Oh my um, God. I finally Send understand the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> it took it took like an amazing work of fiction to make me understand the appeal of SVU, but like I feel like I understand why people love SVU now. Dun dun. Um, <laughs> dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> this book is so good. It was a she was a finalist um, for the National Book Award, and she did not end up winning it, but she won the National Book Award of my heart, and also she's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Please start giving out more awards from your heart. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hi, thanks for being on the podcast today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I am obsessed with this collection you've written. And I want to first ask you about the biggest, longest piece in the middle that is about SVU. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I think that like a lot of the, I think a lot of our listeners, unlike me, are probably like longtime Law & Order SVU watchers and fans. (laughs) I have forever been the one woman in my friend circle who like doesn't watch it doesn't get it and I have to say that like reading it like your take on this especially in the context of your book has made me kind of change my opinion or like understand a little better what is appealing (laughs) about watching it so I'm maybe you could talk a little bit about that piece and about what you're doing with like the the trope that is SVU yeah it's so funny you are like the third or fourth person to say to me like I've never seen the show people seem really interested in that story and I think it's because and I've heard someone describe like Law and Order SVU as like the fairy tale of our time but there's Mm. this really great essay by Kate Bernheimer that I teach when I teach fairy tales uh, as a writing teacher where she talks about how like fairy tales have this very specific very pleasurable form that like repeats itself and that form includes Mm. things like sort of abstract language what is called flatness so basically like the psychological depth 
there isn't the traditional psychological depth that you'd imagine. Like, you know, people say like, oh, like this character feels like two dimensional and not three dimensional. And normally that's considered sort of a bad thing. But she's like in the fairy tale, that's like very conventional, right? It's like the witch, the girl, the boy, like, you know, it's not, you know, if a witch tries to eat somebody, they don't become neurotic when they grow up, you know? Um, so there's no like psychological <laughs> yeah. depth. But then she, her argument is that like that lack of psychological depth provokes a depth of response in the reader. Mm. And then also part of this convention is like normalized magic, which obviously in the original Law and Order, like it's a realist show, like there's no magic, there's no ghosts. But I definitely think I sort of took that and like injected the magic that would make it a real fairy tale and sort of tried to get at the pleasure of that show, which is like the repeating formula um, that sort of brings us back to the beginning every time and like tells us something very essential about like how we think about sexual violence and how we think about women and how we think about ourselves. And like, I'm also really interested in the fact that like Law and Order SVU, I mean, if you don't count the the true crime one that's out now, um, which I don't really, cause it's like not, it's like not really Law and Order. Um, <laughs> th- like Law and Order SVU is the only actively running Law and Order franchise. Right. And like, what is it? And what does it mean that like the, the rape one is the one that we like can't stop watching and that like is so successful and that people are really obsessed with. With this story, I was sort of trying to tackle my own like complicated relationship with the show, which I feel like is both in some ways sort of exploitative and like not super aware of its own like problematic stance on a lot of things. And also in some ways it's very <laughs> subversive. And so I don't know, like I feel like I was like, well, I have complicated feelings about this. I'm just going to try to tackle it as best I know how. Well, and for me, that magical element was kind of like a crucial way into it where I was like, okay, like, you know, whatever you said about the the episodes that are more true crime inspired is how I felt about it for a long time. But when I read it with this kind of magical twist, it like that that definitely unlocked something for me about yeah. what other what other viewers are seeing. And so I'm curious, like we um we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Margaret Atwood. Oh yeah. And she was talking about you know, speculative fiction and choosing that label over or perhaps preferring it over a label like science fiction. And sure. your work, I've seen it put in, in several different genre categories, both of those among them. <laughs> to me, that's usually a sign, maybe this is a writerly thing, that like people can't put their finger on exactly what you're doing or you're doing something that is actually kind of different than all of those things, but we, those are the buckets we have for them. And I'm curious right. if, like, if there is a label you use or if, like, if any of those terms feel more right to you than others for your work. Yeah, um, I mean... It, I feel like this is also an argument that happens where people get really stressed out depending on like what camp or like community they belong to. So I think, I think poor, Mar- I think I love Margaret Atwood's work and I feel like she's been really, people get really stressed out because I've heard her say things like my work is like, she sort of uses these more um, sort of moderating or softening labels and people get mad they're like oh why wasn't she claiming she's a genre writer they get really stressed out about it Mm. people in genres like science fiction and fantasy and horror are sort of used to being sort of ghettoized and like marginalized in the literary sort of community in the literary world I sort of accept all labels just because I I also don't really care uh (laughs) (laughs) like I wouldn't say I'm a science fiction writer I've only written one science fiction story so I feel like and that's inventory and so I feel like that I wouldn't label just because I feel like that's just not actually like I don't operate in those rules like I'd say I'm more of like a liminal fantasy slash magical realist slash speculative fiction slash like literary surrealism slash you know I feel like I'm in there somewhere but I'm not super interested in any of and you know slash horror writer like I feel like I'm not really interested in like fully occupying one of those buckets like it's like whatever you want to call it like I don't really care because I get to do what I want to do I think my work is literary in the sense that it's like, I'm very concerned with like language and psychology. Like that's part of my project. And so that's a style. You can have like literary fantasy and literary science fiction and literary horror, which just means that like the style is literary and the genre, which is like the world building rules are horror or sci-fi or fantasy or whatever. Well, whatever label you use for it, I, I feel like we're living in this moment, especially for women, for people of color, for queer people, when like the surreal has never felt more real, which is not to say that like things have never been like difficult. I think I would have read this book really differently if I had read it in the last year of Obama's term as opposed to now. And I know that like, it's kind of a complicated thing to be like, talk about the political. Um, But I'm curious (laughs) about, about, you know, this, this idea of like the surrealist elements and like what is real and how in touch 
you know, your characters or maybe you feel with the world, how that came into play when you're writing this? Yeah, you know, it's been really weird. Like I recently did an interview where someone asked me, like, why do you think your book's doing so well? And I was like, I feel like part of it, it's really shitty. It's like part of the reason it's doing so well is because the world is coming apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, it always was kind of coming apart, but I feel like it's coming apart now in a very more in a more active and sort of like visible way. Yeah, it's weird because it's like I sold it when Obama was still president. Like, I, you know, I, but I feel right, like right. short story collections tend to reflect like whatever the writer's been thinking about for the past X number of years. And so for mm-hmm. me, like my book, it just reflected this like quality of how being a woman can really suck sometimes and how like we hate women. And like, I feel like those ideas were just kind of coming up naturally anyway. And so it's weird because like then suddenly Trump was elected. These really ugly things that were maybe slightly more hidden before became a little more explicit. People started panicking and suddenly my book is there. But like, I don't know, like it reflects the panic that I was already having like two years ago or, you know, over the last five years. There's like an inherent panic, I think, in some ways into God, when you when you step away from it a little bit and like 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 look at it with a little more remove, it is horror. Like there's a yeah. lot about women's bodies. Like and you know, and also the experience of being in one. The kind of inherent control and violence that like we just slowly become used to. And I don't know a way to ask this that doesn't seem totally invasive in like a 15 minute interview, but like your own relationship with your body, if there are things that like you are, you were like, oh yeah, like this has got to be part of this story. Or if there's something like specific that you wanted to work through with some of those aspects of the book. I I mean, I feel like I wanted to write about sexual violence. I wanted to write about domestic abuse. I wanted to write about fatness. I wanted to write about sex and like, especially sex with men. I'm queer, like I'm married to a woman, but I, you know, have been with lots of men and like I, I was just interested in sort of writing about that dynamic. I mean, so I feel like all the things that I was sort of that were on my mind, uh, like mental health is another one, like I wanted to write about like mental health and like how to talk about mental health as a woman and as a queer woman, because, you know, there are these sort of negative stereotypes about the crazy lesbian and like, you know, how women are insane and like all these, all these things. So I right. felt like what would what would drive a woman to queerness, right? Like that yeah, kind of thing. Like there's just I don't know. Yeah. Like I really just wanted to like kind of go face into all these things. The only thing that I didn't I don't really explicitly touch on in this collection that I because I feel like it's I'm still kind of working through it is like I I mean I'm his I'm Hispanic, like I'm but I'm like mixed. Like my my mom is white and like I'm really interested in writing about race and the be, like being like a white passing person of color, but I also that is not a thing that really was in this book because that was something that it's something that I'm still sort of thinking a lot about and then possibly writing about for my next not my not my next book which is a memoir but the book after that but mostly besides that like I've touched I touched on like all the things that really in my sort of personal life are things that I think about often and I worked through them by writing stories about them um Right. Which is like weird because I feel like people are always like, don't use your fiction as like a psychological, like as a therapist. And it's not like that. It's more just sort of like, wow, this, like I, I think about fatness constantly and like the politics of fatness. And I eventually wrote an essay about fatness, but I had to write a short story first. And so when it's with a topic like that, where you're like, I know I want to explore fatness. I'm really thinking about what this means. How do you find the like specific vehicle for like knowing you want to tackle this higher level thing that's happening in the world and like maybe happening to you? Do you like, do those characters just come to you? Do you like see a moment in the world where you're like, that is where I can start? How does that work? It really depends on the story. I mean, that, so uh, Eight Bites, which is the story in the collection that deals with like a woman who has gastric bypass surgery and then becomes like haunted by her own body, um, like her like her body that she has lost. I, like my mother's had gastric bypass surgery. A lot of my aunts have had gastric bypass surgery. And I have a lot of, and as a fat woman, I have a lot of thoughts about that. And I don't know, like, I feel like I was sort of constantly trying to work through them. And it's not a thing that I talk to her about or really like anybody who's had it about. And actually, initially, that story was supposed to be a retelling of The Little Mermaid. And it ended up getting so far away oh, from it that, Yeah, you would only know if you, like, looked really closely and you sort of knew that's what it was. Because, like, I ended up sort of burying slash excising a lot of those elements. So I feel oh like I God, had I'm that idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I had that idea. And then I, I was sort of like, okay, I want to tell a story about a woman who has this surgery. And then I was sort of thinking about my mother. And I was thinking about, like, so, so like, you know, in that story, like, there's, like, daughter who's like sort of distant from her and is like angry about like the fact that her mother seems to hate her own body and therefore by extension hates the daughter's body too. Even though the story is like obviously not 
it's not autobiographical in like most ways. Um, I should I should add it was important to me to be writing from the perspective of the mother and not the daughter. And so that was like really painful and really intense. But that's what I ended up doing. Every story is different, though. I mean, like the husband stitch, like that was a story where I, I like actually had the idea. I had the kind of like this fragmented where I was like, um, maybe you should explain what the husband stitch is. Sorry, just for people who haven't. Oh, had the sure. Of reading. <laughs> yeah. So basically, so I have an aunt who's an OBGYN nurse. Um, and so years ago, I was like talking to her and I don't even know how it came up. But she sort of mentioned this thing called the husband stitch. And I was like, what is that? And she said, well, when women come in and they give birth and they have episiotomies, like they have this like sort of cut that's made like in their is it perineum like between their vagina and their anus basically to like help with childbirth um mm-hmm. you know it has to get sewn back up and when that happens sometimes men will say things like oh sew it up tight like give it an extra stitch you know this like fucked up way of like talking about the- right like super fucked up um Real life horror. That is like real just like life. straight up horror. That is real. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, what are you talking about? And I, but the, the phrase, the husband stitch was just so chilling. And I literally just like, I mean, I have a lot oh. of like, I have like a whole file. It's just like potential titles. And I wrote down the husband stitch. Cause I was like, that's the creepiest phrase I've ever heard in my whole life. Describing the creepiest thing I've ever heard described to me ever. Oh, um, you mentioned that your next book is a memoir and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, especially with things like, um, you know, writing about, uh, fatness or like writing about like anything that you feel like maybe as a part of your personal story that you're still working through. Um, maybe you could talk a bit about the memoir and where you're kind of focusing that and how you're, it's, it's always seemed so difficult to me to like, to try to figure out how to make literature out of your own life. So I would love to hear (laughs) how you're embarking on that and like what your timeline is and a little bit more about that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I also struggle with this very question, which is why it's amazing that this is the next project I'm working on. Um, So the memoir is called House in Indiana. It's being published by Grey Wolf in two years. So it's due to them. It's due to them next year for me, like the final version of it. Um, So it is a memoir about domestic abuse in same-sex relationships. Um, which includes like my own experience. When I first started working on this project, I was sort of really looking, doing a lot of research and trying to find information about like historical accounts of domestic violence and same-sex relationships. Because if you look, if you're like, I need examples of like male artists who beat their girlfriends or their wives or killed them or something, you can find them everywhere. (laughs) Like that's like, there's Right, like you, you just- yeah. It's like a first day. There's no shortage of those accounts, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, queer history is already very, like, hard to sort of track down in terms of, like, narratives. I mean, like, it, I only found out, like, four years ago that, like, Eleanor Roosevelt was queer and, like, you know, and there are, like, books and things written about it, but, like, I just never knew because no one ever told me. And, like, the history was just so sort of hidden. Um, and people don't want to talk about it or people are like, oh, we don't really know that they were gay. Like, maybe they were just whatever. And so, like, that history is already hard to find. And then if you add the sort of complication of like domestic violence to that or any kind of like abuse, it becomes even harder. And so, Mm. you know, I was trying to do this research where I was looking for like books about this exact topic. And like, I found a couple of like academic books and that was like it. I mean, it's just like, it's really, it's a really weirdly sort of barren literary space, but it's really hard. It's really hard to write about yourself. Um, this is also why like essays take me forever. Like I have a few essays published, but like I write maybe one a year because they take so much out of me and it's just such a different mental process. Whereas I can just like tear through short stories like nobody's business. Like I write like way more short stories every year than I do essays or any other form. Right. I don't know. Like I feel like as long as I feel like I am adding something useful to this like very, very narrow sort of body of inquiry then I guess that's that'll be my accomplishment in that field, in that area. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. The fact that you found so little when you went looking, I feel like probably both makes this book all the more difficult, but also all the more necessary. Right. And I mean, it's it's funny, like some advice I always give like students or like people when they ask me about writing is like, you have to write the things that you want to see in the world. And I mean, that, that include that's whatever, like that's fiction, nonfiction. Like if you don't see it and you want it, make it. So last question, our, the, the structure of our podcast is two l- long-distance friends catching up on right. pretty much everything. And so we always like to ask our guests about the friendships that have shaped their lives. And I'm curious when you think about Her Body and Other Parties in particular, if there are friendships that um, either helped you like see that process through and really got you there or like 
you know, people whose whose friendship like really contributed to some of the ideas in it. I would love to hear you shout out someone who's important. <laughs> I mean, I feel very lucky because I feel like one of the best sort of gifts of my life is I've had so many amazing friends. Like if I try to sit down and catalog them all. I mean, I don't know if you saw the acknowledgement section of my book, which was ridiculously long. Help. I always read the acknowledgements first. I'm like a super weird person that way. Oh, that's really so sweet. I definitely saw them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd say the friend that saw me through the book, I mean, this is cheating, but like my wife Val, who is my first reader for so many of these stories and is like just my biggest champion and is amazing. And I honestly could not have like edited or done like most of these stories without her. Um, so she she's which I mean that's cheating because like she lives with me and like we're married, but um <laughs> so yeah, uh, but then I think before that, the friend that really comes to mind for me is my friend Anne, and Anne was somebody I met in college, and um, I actually was like not out to myself when I was in college at first. Like I was very confused because I like thought about kissing girls constantly, but like did not understand what that meant, like a real weirdo. Um, and so <laughs> I sort of got to college, and Anne was just like, "I'm queer, and I'm here, and." And she was just like, she was just like so amazing and was like, you know, brace yourself. Like she was just like just the most like open sort of excited person I'd ever met and like talked about sexuality and talked about being queer. And I sort of figured out, I was like, oh, am I that thing also? And then I was like, I think I am. And it was like this really intense process. And Anne has been like a friend. I mean, we've been friends ever since. She actually just got married. I just went to her wedding. It's It's been really amazing sort of seeing each other like sort of evolve and grow like over the course of the last like, I guess it'd be four, 12 years. Is that right? Totally. 12 years. Like friends as models years. for what's possible. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like, I, you know, it's so weird because again, it's like, how the hell did I not even realize? But I, I don't know. Like I literally was just sort of like, okay, Anne wants to kiss girls. Anne is queer. She talks about being queer. She seems really happy. Wait, I want to kiss girls. I feel, wait, am I, <laughs> like, it was like this, I mean, it seems weird to say that, say it like that, but yeah, it was like this model for like, like what I could be and how my life could be. Uh, shout out to Anne. Shout out that. to Anne. She's the best. <laughs> I freaking love her. She's my favorite, one of my favorite human beings in the whole world. So, yeah. Uh well, listen, thank you so much for being on the podcast of today. Of course. Oh, thank you. No, thank you so much for having me and all the great questions. And yeah, I'm really glad you love the book. And finally, I interviewed Jacqueline Friedman, no relation to yours truly, uh, about her new work of nonfiction, Unscrewed, a timely book about basically sexual politics and power. Jacqueline, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, another Friedman, an unrelated yes, but, but Friedman wonderful love. Friedman. <laughs> Every time I quote you in something, I always say, and Friedman. No relation to my great regret. <laughs> sad, sad face, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I have read your new book. Maybe you can, for those who are listening and have not had the privilege, give me the, the synopsis, like the gist of, of, what, of what it does and what you're trying to do with it. Yeah, it's called Unscrewed, Women's Sex Power and How to Stop Letting the System Screw Us All. And it's basically a call to move away from talking about female sexual empowerment as this individualistic narrative. Like, as an individual lady, you need to figure out what's going to make you feel like the sexiest and, and go for it. And shifting away from that narrative, not that there's anything wrong with doing that's the stuff that makes you feel sexy, but we need to not get so wrapped up in that conversation that we miss the systemic change that needs to happen. Like, we need 
to look at the actual cultural institutions and systems that are keeping women as a group from accessing our full sexual sovereignty. And so the book, each chapter kind of takes a look at one of those systems and also profiles somebody who I think is doing really good work moving the ball down the field. So, you know, just to make sure I'm like understanding you right, the idea that like, okay, I could be as an individual woman, like thinking about the things that bring me pleasure or the ways I want to express my sexuality and yet still feel unsafe or like upset or like not turned on and be kind of confused because there's like, a big bad system in place. Is that is that another way of putting it? Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of women really feel that way that, you know, we take the pole dancing class or buy the sexy lingerie or whatever it is we think is going to make us feel, you know, our sexiest, most empowered selves. And yet we still feel this insecurity, like, am I doing this right? Like, it still feels sort of competitive in our heads. And we also still might really get punished for it, right? Like if we do that sexually empowered stuff and somebody sexually assaults us, oftentimes we're going to get blamed because we appear slutty just for doing that stuff where we're supposed to empower ourselves. Or somebody may non-consensually share a sexy picture of us that we said was only for them. Or we may lose our job over this stuff or or any number of things. We, we may not be able to get an abortion or birth control because the religious right is tied up in our government. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we have to deal with that's totally external to whether you as an individual woman or I as an individual woman like feel like our most sexual selves. I'm curious about your personal evolution on this issue because I I read and have on my shelf and filled out the worksheets in your previous book, What You Really, Really <laughs> Want, which is about you know, delving into and trying to separate what I as an individual feel sexy about versus like the messages I've gotten. And I'm, I'm curious about whether like on the heels of that book, you thought it was almost like too individualized or like how you came to the idea that this, this that Unscrewed needed to be written to. I almost feel like it's a sequel, mm -hmm. right? So the first book was actually inspired by the young women I met on tour for Yes Means Yes, which was the anthology I did with Jessica Valenti before What You Really, Really Want. So there's three books. And I, I met so many young women who said, I love the idea of affirmative consent. I love yes means yes and no means no. But I don't know what I want to say yes or no to. Mm -hmm. uh, can you help me with that? And I realized that I could, but I couldn't do it in a Q&A length, which is why I wrote What You Really, Really Want. But then I also realized that What You Really, Really Want takes for granted that the sexual culture is broken. And in fact, culture is made of people, mm -hmm. right? So... I didn't want to take for granted that the sexual culture was broken. And so Unscrewed is about, well, how do we fix it? Which, for me, this is one of those things, kind of like saying, like, how do we make more equitable relationships in our home or things like that? Like, places that are outside the realm, um, sometimes outside the realm of law, like, if we're not talking about assault, if we're talking about just, like, a fulfilling sexual relationship, for example, sometimes, you know, these are things that, like, we can pass laws about. But are there specific examples that you have of things that are more in the realm of, like, culture? Like, this idea of, like, oh, you know, women feeling shame for pursuing what they want or things, things like that that are not, like, we can pass a law or, like, file a lawsuit that are slow change. Do you have examples of good work being done there? Oh, sure. I mean, I think a lot of the work on remaking our cultural ideas of masculinity fits in that category. You know, and I make an argument for really reaching younger in terms of intervening with boys before they develop really toxic ideas about masculinity instead of doing, you know, work once that those ideas have already set in. And I profile a group in Maine that is working with middle school boys where boys are really still forming their social ideas. And they have this really promising program going on where they go into a school and they work with every boy in the grade. So it's a culture shift. It's not just these couple of boys went out into this program. I'm also thinking about changing our ideas towards sex workers, right? There's some legal stuff that needs to change around sex work for sure. But the idea that whores are either victims or evil, right? It really needs to be like pulled out at the root culturally, not just because it harms sex workers, although that should be enough of a reason, but because all of us sort of fall somewhere on the, what's called the hierarchy, which is, I wish, I wish I'd coined that term. It's so great. Which is sort of like how we rank women according to sluttiness, right? Any one of us can get called a whore in a way to punish or control us. And so how whores are considered in the culture really needs to shift for all of us to be free. 
Yeah. And how do, how do these issues affect people who may or may not identify as women who are part of the queer community too? Because I know that like, we definitely spend more time on this show talking about cis hetero female perspective on sex and on shame. But one of the many things I was interested in in your book is is the places where the lens is expanded a little bit to show how it's not just like a very traditional cis femme presentation that gets you on the hierarchy, <laughs> if you will. You know, like it's a lot. It's it's, it's a lot of behavior that is like outside sanctioned norms. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I actually spent some time in a day program for queer, homeless, and housing insecure young people and really learned a lot about how because those young people are seen as already devalued because of capitalism, really, because they don't have money and they don't have financial stability, they therefore don't have respectability and they're treated as completely disposable. And they're exposed to all kinds of sexual risk because of it, right? Because, you know, they may be sleeping outdoors. And, you know, I heard that waking up and finding a strange man in your sleeping bag is like so common, they don't even call it rape. (laughs) It's, It's like what's expected, which, you know, every time I say that, like my gut just sort of like, Um, (laughs) I I have to choke down the vomit. So, you know, there's all these crazy intersections between economic oppression and queer oppression and, you know, housing insecurity that we really have to look at all of it together. I think it's also true that a lot of queer people get raised with the notion, which doesn't come from nowhere, that they are devalued because of who they love and who they want to have sex with. Um, and so if somebody wants to hurt them, then they feel like that's that's expected because they already feel like they're bad and wrong. So that can really make queer people more vulnerable to sexual abuse of all kinds. Queer kids also, uh, along with girls of color, get called in on dress code infractions in school, like crazy rates, because, you know, they're falling outside the norms that are being tried to be put on pose on them by dress codes, which are all about policing gendered and sexual bodies in schools. So, yeah, it does, all the issues really collide. Yeah. And so talk to me a little bit about that too, about, you know, because when I think about the ways all of this stuff intersects, it can get difficult really quickly to figure out what we do about it, right? Like in some ways you would say, okay, great. When we work on one issue, we work on, we're actually working on everything because it's all interconnected. But then there's this other perspective I have sometimes, which is like, oh my God, how do we go about changing the mentality of like literally everyone in culture. <laughs> and I get I get over <laughs> I get overwhelmed really quickly because like we know that like laws are shaped by people as well. And so, you know, I really do believe that like, you know, even even though I was drawing the distinction earlier between culture and laws that like all this stuff is connected. And so, like are you is this book also a manual for where to start in terms of action or practical first steps? I mean, it maybe falls shy of a manual, although the epilogue contains a practical guide, like a really 101-level guide to getting involved if you feel overwhelmed. You know, I, I tend to think of the case studies that I present in each chapter of somebody or a group who I think is doing really fantastic work making change on the institution that that chapter is about as a little bit of a roadmap, but it's not like you have to do like them. What I want readers to come away with is a sense of possibility and that the ways to do this social change work are infinite and that the best thing to do is pick a piece, the piece that most appeals to you and plug in. And And then there are practical steps in the epilogue. And my, my best, most basic advice is this. If you want to make change and it feels overwhelming, make the issue smaller. So maybe you want to change the way sex ed is taught in American schools. I certainly do. But that's a huge undertaking. It's incredibly complicated. So what if you made it smaller? What about on the state level? Well, maybe that still feels impossible. What about at your school board level or at your individual school? Maybe there's somebody already working on this that you can plug in with, right? Another one of my tips in the epilogue is leaders need followers, right? Like you don't need to start something. You could also just find someone or a group that you think is already doing good work and ask them what help they need. The important thing to do is notice when you're feeling overwhelmed by the size of the challenge and then just sort of zoom in and zoom in until you find a piece that's small enough that you feel like you could get started. Right. 
your book is being born in this moment where, uh, I mean, I know it was born a lot early, earlier, but like born into the world at a moment when I, I do feel like um, rape culture and, um, you know, power structures as they relate to sexuality and assumptions people make about sexuality, things like that. All of that is coming to the fore as like we're seeing this wave of people coming forward about their experiences at the hands of largely powerful men, although some not so powerful. And I'm curious about whether you think that changes the context for this book. I mean, obviously this stuff is not new. I mean, everyone who's listening to this podcast knows that it's not like, oh my God, all of a sudden harassment and abuse are a thing. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, I do think in terms of like, like the mainstream conversation, I mean, like I open my daily like New York Times and LA Times email headlines blast and I see assault and harassment every day lately, you know, like, which is, I mean, I, that's how I feel about the world. And I'm like, whoa, it's being reflected in headlines. I'm curious if you think that there is more possibility in this moment, or if you're like, this feels kind of like what's been going on for a long time. It's just that the conversation has expanded. I think it's a little more the latter. I mean, we had a conversation a lot like this at this exact time last year after the Access Hollywood tapes came out, and there was a hashtag and all of that stuff. You mean the uh, tapes in which like are every- now president admitted that he yes. likes to assault women. Right, those tapes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, like, a dozen women came forward and said that he had sexually assaulted them. Right. Uh, and then lots and lots of women got on Twitter and used a hashtag and said, this has happened to me too. <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. literally the same pattern. Um, but I do feel like there's, like, an order of magnitude difference with this one. Like, I keep being surprised at how long the conversation is lasting and how people are digging in. And that gives me hope that this is a step forward, right? That this is part of the ongoing work of anti-sexual violence work that people have been working on forever. But that it does feel like a moment in which people are really open to thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I hear a lot of people saying, well, what do we do? And what needs to change? Where do we go from here? And I'm hoping that Unscrewed can be part of that answer. Yes, Oh my God. Okay. And final question. I know that it's probably not possible to spend um, the amount of time that you've spent working on this book without feeling some personal change or evolution. And I'm curious about whether you've met someone or encountered something new in the process that has made you feel differently about your own sexuality or your own choices, or maybe your own beliefs about how to move forward. I mean, working with and visiting with all the folks I got to profile for the book has definitely made me feel both more hopeful in a general sense, but also just more connected. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a much more visceral sense that I'm part of a much larger interconnected set of movements and I don't have to do it all myself. But on a more personal level, you know, as you know, which because I, I wrote about it in the book, you know, I, I did have a set of revelations when I went, <laughs> very unexpectedly, when I went to watch porn for science. Mm. Um, <laughs> Tell me more. Which I thought would be... <laughs> Just this sort of fun lark. It's this really interesting sex lab outside of Toronto that's studying women's sexual response and how it differs from men. And so I I was super interested to go, but I didn't expect it to get deep. But like the process of watching my sexual arousal on a chart and having somebody tell me that it was normal. uh, Whoa kind of like shook something loose in me that I didn't realize I wanted that validation so much. You know, I've lived so much of my life feeling outside the norm when it comes to my sexuality, both as a queer slash bisexual woman, as a fat woman, as a feminist anti-rape activist, you know, like all of that stuff has made me feel kind of outside what was supposed to be normal. And to hear that like there's some level on which I'm totally normal was really validating on like a monkey brain level. And then the fact that it was validating was also like really shook me. You mean that what turned you on was like, quote unquote, normal by research standards. Is that what you mean by normal? No, it wasn't even what turned me on. I didn't get a choice of that. It was more like my pattern, like what happened in my body as I got Uh, turned on. Okay, okay. Was like the way that most women's bodies work. Like it was, it was that basic, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and and I'm still sort of thinking about that. And, and I think it gets to the premise of the book, which is that so many of us at Root are just deeply insecure about ourselves as sexual humans. Um, and the book is about why that is and 
what is going to be required in the hard work of making it so that we can all grow up and just feel sexual in our own ways and have those myriad ways be really okay. Jacqueline, thanks so much. And I can't wait for everyone to read this book and collectively change rape culture. <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's do it. Yes, queens of reading books and being smart. <laughs> Queen, queens of reading books and being smart. Aren't we all? <laughs> that's Listen, that's how I think of myself every day. Um, finally, do you want to do some, sh- like a shout out to, uh, something else that we read, that we each read this year that we were super into that, like, that we didn't get to talk about? Um, or do you, do you have a reading rec? I always, you know, I always love hearing your, your nonfiction recs as well. Oh my God. So I am actually reading and all I have is the galley is This Will Be My Undoing by Morgan Jerkins. Mm. And that's out in January, 2018. And it's good. It's a good, like, feminist book written by a black feminist lady. It's essays, right? Yeah. It's a book of essays, and it's about, like, it's exactly about that, like, being black and female and feminist in white America. I think that's the tagline, and it's it's been a while since I've enjoyed a good book of essays. So I'm really excited for this one to come out. <laughs> the other book that I just finished reading right now that I'm really excited about is the Ron Chernow uh, Grant book. Mm. Listen, Ulysses is, was our most maligned president, and he's always been in my top five, so I'm so happy to see him get his due finally. And you know how those Ron Chernow books are? It's like a thousand pages. You like drink the whole thing and you're like, wow, history is so great. And then you write um, an award-winning smash hit musical based on Ulysses S. Grant. I, <laughs> listen, I went to see him speak with um, friend of the pod, Alexis Coe, who is like, you know, the best like lady historian in the universe. But so she took me to this talk and it was hilarious because we were definitely like some of the youngest people there. But also, like, my favorite thing about Ron Chernow is that, like, he's not ashamed of being a star fucker like other people in academia. Somebody made a reference to the Hamilton musical and, like, doesn't skip a beat. And he's just like, yeah, this is being turned into a movie. Just got optioned this morning. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I was like, yes, I'm into it. I will watch the movie. Like, I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. And then speaking of Alexis Coe, her book, Alice and Frida Forever, A Murder in Memphis, is like what is like a book that I read not this year, but I revisited this year. And it is so it's so good. It's about like murder. It's like a murderous teenager. It's like if you're into like murders and teenagers, like 100 percent like true historical and crime <laughs> yeah true historical crime and it's getting turned into a movie by the lady who made the babadook so like it's gonna be amazing <laughs> also we read a lot of poetry in this family this year mm, yes like. morgan parker's poetry collection there are more beautiful things than beyonce and which i believe also, we have shouted out before but deserves a second shout we out. have shouted out before but like if you don't own it you should 100 percent own it you know, and another like book thing that I want to shout out is the well-read black girl group. Oh um, yes, glory and website. Yeah, that is has been like really, really, really good to me this year, and is like a really good resource for you know. It's like yes, like a book club I can actually like get down with. And right now they're reading uh, Electric Arches, uh, Eve Ewing's book, and it's really fucking great. Amazing. I. Went hard on Rachel Cusk this year. I read both Transit and Outline and was like super, super into it. What else did I read? I loved Zinzi Clemens' novel, What We Lose. Yes. Um, really, really good. One Queen of my top. Of grief novels. I mean, so good though. Like, and really, um, and really an amazing book about not just someone having like an immediate grief experience right after a loved one dies, but like a book about the reverberations of loss throughout a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's so, it's so powerful. It was so good. And also like a really pleasant quick read. And I know it sounds weird to say that about a book that's about grief, but I really, really loved it. I read in galley form, um, friend of the podcast, Beth Pickens, Your Art Will Save Your Life, which is a book I'm so excited to give to everyone I know in 2018. That is about making art, being a person with an artistic practice, but also being attuned to things that are happening in the world and being like a force for 
political action on behalf of like the things you believe. And I'm excited for everyone to read that next year. What else did I read that I loved? Danzi Senna's New People, I thought was like pretty intense. It's a book that, that's the book that I'm like, I'm not sure I loved reading this, but I want to talk about it with everyone. So if you read New People and have feelings, (laughs) that too. I don't know. Many, many things, many things. And I'm excited. I have like a reading list for the holiday break that is like as long as like everything I read previous in 2017. Here's what's on my holiday reading list is the Tina Brown uh, Diana Chronicles. Oh my God. And then Big Little Lies because everybody says it's better than the TV show, which I don't ever believe about anything, but these people are very credible. And then Lincoln and the Bardot, lols. That's on my list too, LOL, trend fiction. <laughs> I know, but I was told I was told by multiple friends that Lincoln and the Bardot is an excellent audiobook with like a really big cast Ooh. and that it's like worth like audiobook listening. So I'm like, I'm into it. You know that I usually save audiobooks for celebrity memoirs, so... This is big deviation over here. A major exception. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so so that 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 is also on my list. Um, I want to read "Sing Unburied Sing," the Jesmyn Ward book that came out this mm-hmm. year, which I haven't Very read yet. Good. And then also like some previously published but re-released Eve Babbitt's material, which is like uh, I'm spending my holiday in LA kind of go-to, including her novel "Sex and Rage," which I've heard is. Very good, but I have not read it. So reading that too. I can't wait till you check back in. Ugh, yes. I would say see you on the internet, but we're both going to be reading. <laughs> um, you know what? See you in the text message thread. Yeah, see you on the text thread. <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Bleed, on the Call Your Girlfriend website. Uh, You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>